You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured episode 125. This week, we bring you a recording of our Belaboured Live panel last week, March 29th, at Fordham Law School in New York City. Co-hosted by the Fordham Law Coalition of Concerned Students and the Workers' Rights Advocates at Fordham Law, our panel on labor, Trump, and the fight for economic justice featured three organizers and participants in three very different strikes. We spoke with Rabia Altebani, a co-organizer of the Yemeni bodega strike that took place in New York against Trump's immigration and refugee policies February 2nd. Javed Tariq, a taxi driver, a member of the New York Taxi Workers Alliance and co-organizer of the taxi workers strike at JFK Airport against Trump's Muslim ban on January 28th. And Pam Galpern, a Verizon field technician and mobilization coordinator for CWA Local 1101, who was part of the strike at Verizon in April and May of 2016. We began the evening by asking our speakers to introduce themselves and the strikes that they helped to make happen. So, I'm Rabia Adibani, or Rab Adibani. I'm a Yemeni American community activist, and I am one of the Abodeka strike organizers. I, of course, canvassed and worked as hell for Bernie Sanders, but then that didn't happen, and then we, of course, joined um, camps with the Hillary Clinton um, campaign and tried to get out the vote, the Yemeni American vote for Hillary Clinton, um, but then Trump won the election. And of course, um, before this, there was also there was this a lot of this rhetoric, and I was hoping it was just rhetoric, you know, the Muslim ban, the Muslim registry, all of that. Were like, oh yeah, that's yeah, he's just trying to get the vote, he's just trying to win the election. In my mind, it was like, well, you know what, this is this can't be possible. Would he actually try to implement this and do this? Well, yes, he did. Within a week. <laughs> We had a leaked uh, um, executive order, which was essentially the Muslim ban. So a couple of days before he signed the executive order, Samar Nasser, who's another um, community, Yemeni American community organizer, um, and I had uh, translated this leaked um, executive order, uh, hoping that this was not going to be what he was going to sign because it included, it was just crazy, it included green card holders, it was just, so we, he signed it at around 4.45 Friday night, shock, disbelief, extreme sadness, um, a sense of feeling really defeated, um, thinking about the, thinking first of all at a very personal level, as a Yemeni American whose husband is stranded and a refugee in Malaysia, and whose uncle is also a refugee who escaped the Yemenin war, that we have a direct hand in creating these refugees the United States of America have. And he was stranded in Jordan. And he was already vetted, and he's been there for two years, and he was ready and like excited to like resettle with his four children in Michigan. So. <laughs> Sorry, I get emotional. <laughs> so I was like, I really, I, I tried to like, my uncle calls me and he's like, what is this, what's happening? This is not, this is not the America that you've told me about, that you've always told me about. I'm like, no, it's not. And I just had no words and I, I, I kind of cried myself to sleep that night. Um, but then 
I woke up the next morning, <laughs> and I'm getting all these messages in uh, Murad Awada from the New York Immigration Coalition. I'm like, Rabha, get up, get here, get to JFK. I'm like, what? what's happening? He's like, there's hundreds of people out here. There are like hundreds of attorneys. We've, you gotta be here, you gotta come out here. And then that sadness and like sense of feeling defeated turned into this anger. This anger and like, no, 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 no. This is not, this is not happening anymore. I remember that very night when he did sign it, Friday night, and I've been an organizer for a very long time. And I have over 15,000 followers on Facebook, half of which are Yemeni bodega owners that don't speak or write English. And they are always active in Arabic on my newsfeed. They use dead silence. In any case, and I went out to JFK. You know what? New Yorkers don't go to JFK at 8 o'clock in the morning unless you have to fly. You all know that. Who the hell goes to JFK? I get there, and it was so amazing because there were like hundreds and hundreds of New Yorkers, besides the attorneys that have already taken over Terminal 4, okay, pro bono on a Saturday morning. Hundreds and hundreds of beautiful New Yorkers, and this was just not in New York City, this was throughout the country. And you know what I did? I, 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 I did live, you know, it's good that Facebook has live now, you know, like you can live, like come out in Arabic. And what happened and transpired right after that, I think within 12 or 1 p.m. that Saturday, and we knew we were waiting for that ruling from Brooklyn Court. I had people in my community sending me messages saying, we're on our way. I would have never imagined they would come out and say, and post publicly that they're on their way to protest. And I was just like, wow, this is something different. I think the first two to three days was kind of triage mode. Trying to get uh, people, I got like dozens and probably hundreds of like messages from people that are either stuck in Djibouti, American citizens, mind you, green card holders, people that have petitioned for their families to get out, that it have gone through all that they need to do. These a lot of them are women and children and older people, and a lot of people that had like illnesses. And they were just either stranded, either in Djibouti or Jordan or Malaysia, throughout the world. And now they were also detained throughout every major, practically every airport in the United States of America. I mean, and in between all of this, me trying to get people, like, connecting them with the legal world and, like, know your rights, don't sign anything, you know, if you're a green card holder, if you get to the airport, if you're detained, you know, everything that we can do of, like, you know, do not sign anything that will, you know, strip you of your rights as um, a green card holder or whatever it is, we try to do that online and whatever, whatever, spread the news, but then we were, like, talking kind of amongst ourselves informally about we need to do something bigger. And so on Tuesday morning, a businessman named Zaid Naji called me up. He's like, okay, we've been talking about this. We need to do something. I said, what? What do you want us to do? Let's do it. And I was at work. He's like, we're thinking of a strike. And we're thinking of a strike from like 12 p.m. to 8 p.m. where Yemeni bodega owners will close shop. And then we'll meet at 5 p.m. for a protest and rally against this Muslim ban. I said, it's Tuesday. Oh, okay, I'm on board. In my mind, I'm like, how the hell are we gonna pull this off? Two days. 
And my mind was like, we're gonna get at least a thousand to over a thousand bodega orders to close shop in New York City. And I was on board, totally on board. Um, and by the way, I have to say one thing that's very important in, in stress. This is not, Yemeni bodega owners had boycotted before and they were successful. They boycotted um, the New York Post um, during the second, um, the, the timing, uh, the second intifada in Palestine. And um, they actually refused to sell the New York Post in their shops. Yemenis have always stepped up. And I think it's very important to understand how that boycott and the success of that boycott influenced what we did with the Bodega strike. What happens within the Yemeni community, and it's, it's the usual, it's like Friday prayer. Uh, we would contact all the um, imams or, you know, and say, well, while you're giving your speech on Friday prayer, can you mention that we're boycotting the New York Post because they're saying really bad stuff about innocent people. And they, they're not dumb, they know what's happening. And so they, that's one way. Another way is to also, a lot of it is social media. And a lot of them are on Facebook. And, you know, Facebook is in Arabic and in English, thank God, you know, so um, we did a lot of that. And so um, I think that influenced a lot what happened at this time. Although we only had like about two to three days max. He's, we were talking about it on Monday. He contacted me on Tuesday. I was on board. By uh, Tuesday morning, they did have already a Facebook page, but it was in Arabic. and It was geared totally towards the bodega businessmen, and that was good. Um, but I also, because I have like thousands of followers, I have over 15,000 followers, which are half of them, as I said, are Yemeni bodega shop owners. I also try to spread the word in Arabic. But then in my mind, I was thinking, oh, we need to get to non-Arabs. We need to get to people that are already at JFK, mobilizing at every, you know, like trying to like stop this from happening and trying to like, you know, raise awareness. And so I, I called Widad Hassan, another amazing master degree student, Yemeni woman. And by the way, I'm proud to say that the Bodega Strike organizers were mainly women. We're about seven, but I think four or five of us were women. So how many strikers were there all together? We had over 1,500. We were aiming for 1,000 bodegas to close down. We had over 1,500 bodega owners close shop. And can you imagine, 1,500 bodega owners close shop, and the average um, bodega or grocery store in New York City has either three to four uh, employees. That's the minimum. Right now is a good segue to uh, what happened at JFK um, with the taxi workers. Now we can go back to the airport. So what were you doing at the airport um, the night of uh, you know the big, the big showdown? Okay. Hi, everybody. First thing, uh, it's a big honor for us that we are sitting here and talking to you guys. My name is Javed Tariq and uh, I'm from Pakistan, I'm Muslim. And uh, I'm a cab driver last 23 years and co-founder of New York Taxi Workers Alliance. As uh, the, uh, when Trump started uh, this kind of executive order, we immediately thought that this is a big emergency for us because we have previously experience after 911 how vulnerable cab drivers are because 70% cab drivers belongs to Muslim religion and uh, it's not only one community there is a 
people from all over the world are our members. And uh, right after 911, when this rhetoric started, cab driver was the first people who got uh, assaulted, who got uh, vulnerable, verbally harassed by the passengers. It's, uh, I'm not talking about New Yorkers, because New Yorkers are totally different than people who came from other cities, especially white folks. So New Yorkers understand, because daily basis we were working with them, but whenever we were picking up a passenger who was a visitor here, when they see our Muslim name, they start verbally harassing us, which we already complained to Taxi and Limousine Commission to wipe up our name from our... So immediately we thought about it because 94% of our cab drivers are immigrants from 124 countries and 70% are Muslims. So we sit down together at right around about afternoon. We talked to between each other, our board of members, and we immediately decided that we're going to do a strike at uh, airport between 6 and 7, one hour. It's partially strike. Because uh, when we asked driver to come for any demonstration, we knew there's not going to be enough people. But we knew that people are behind us, our, our drivers are behind us. But when we need to do a strike, we know driver going to sit down in their car and idle. We immediately gave a robocall to our members. We have 19,000 members. And we uh, did an uh, e-blast to them. And even though I was uh, suffering pneumonia, and it was a freezing night on Saturday night, we went to the airport. Few of our uh, active driver members, they went to the airport lot, where is almost 2,000 cabs are standing, and they were dispatched to the different terminals. So a few of our members went to the lot, and they blocked the lot. We went to the Terminal 4 and we start blocking the uh, lot at uh, Terminal 4 to not enter any kind of uh, taxis over there. And taxi driver, they stood with us. They stopped going to the terminal even though they were dispatched to different terminal. They didn't go there. They were standing with the solidarity with us. And instead of 6 to 7, that strikes goes till 2 o'clock night. Finally, 2 o'clock night, I have no energy because I had pneumonia and it was freezing and next day we have to do other works. So we came back until that time it was totally strikes. But who took advantage of that? Uber, these corporate companies. <laughs> that Uber director, uh, executive director who was at the economic com committee of Trump to m make money for himself and let suffering this all working class, a hard working class people. So he immediately announced to lower the price and he was telling to the drivers, go and pick up a passenger. We have almost 5,000 Uber drivers, uh, our members. So he was kind of scabbing our strike. And I'm thankful to the people who saw our solidarity standing with them. Those people started deleting Uber. Overnight, 200,000, as Uber said, but we believe it, it's more than that. 200,000 people delete Uber. It was a big economic hit to the Uber, and the next day, Uber executive director has to resign from Trump administration as an economic committee. So this is our way, our tactic, and our way of standing together and fighting together, because it's not only cab drivers, 
problem. It was all immigrants' problems. Doesn't matter which color you belong, which faith you belong, but we have to stand in solidarity. So we were very much, our first step was, no, we're going to do strike, we're going to stand up for solidarity and, and also safety of our members, that we have to do that. So because, because since 1998, we started organizing in 1996, but in 1998 we formally formed New York Taxi Workers Alliance. In 1998 we had the historic strike in American history. So we build a militant kind of workforce to stand up for our own rights because we are not covered by Department of Labor. We have no protection. So we have to stand by ourselves and so these kind of strategies are helping us to build our power and stand up against uh, these uh, uh, wrong policies which are uh, demolishing all unions and uh, taking off their benefits. So that uh, was the main reason that we stood up uh, in solidarity with, uh, against the Muslim ban and wall ban, uh, against wall, because uh, Trump is acting like uh, he's a king and he can do whatever he wants. In 1990, I left my country on political reason and I came here to talk that this is the most democratic country. But I see it is not true. We, I faced so much uh, racism, so much uh, uh, economically problems, and on top of that, Mr. Trump now bringing back for hundreds of, year, hundreds of years back to the America. It is not right, we have to stand up, we have to fight together, and we have to change those policies. And we really appreciate that uh, in this time, every person stood together, and especially like bodegas and Verizon people and a lot of other people showed up because this is the only way to stand up. It's not uh, negotiating and talking, no. We have to show, we have to hit them economically, we have to stand up to fight much harder. So that uh, was our big goal to do that. And we appreciated that people understood our struggle and they stood with us to the little Uber. Well, then we're going to go back in time a little bit before the election. When Trump yeah. is what a distant <laughs> nightmare on the horizon. Oh. So thank you for having me, and it's really great to hear both of you. Um, my name is Pam Galcorn, I'm a field technician at Verizon, and I've been there 18 years, um, and I'm the mobilization coordinator for CWA Local 1101, which is the local that represents Verizon workers in Manhattan and the Bronx, and also um, a lot of AT&T mobility workers who are engaged in their own contract fight right now. How many people here walked a picket line or gave money or uh, went to a rally or did something, participated in some way during the Verizon strike. Oh, thank you, that's great. Um, I think one of the things that made the strike so successful was the tremendous amount of public support we had. The number of people in the strike footprint, which was Massachusetts and Virginia, who participated in some way, and people outside the footprint as well. Um, and I think it was because people were inspired by the strike. And I just want to talk a little bit about um, why I think that is and what it meant. You know, as Tyler said, it was the largest strike in years. It took on a really powerful target, and there were big stakes involved. Um, we definitely felt like the deck was stacked against us. Deregulation, 
technology changes in telecom, huge job cuts. The industry that we're working in has changed tremendously in the last couple decades. And our workforce has shrunk incredibly. It was very good timing and not coincidental that the strike happened right at the same time as the New York primaries were taking place. And so Bernie really was able to help elevate that um, to a national level. People here may well have had this experience of having their phone line go out and been out for weeks at a time and not been able to get fixed. Or maybe want to get Fios, want to get high-speed internet, and can't. And those things were very related. The company's abandonment of its customers, abandonment of underserved communities, refusal to build high-speed internet for everybody was very much linked to squeezing its workers and cutting its workforce. So those, that was sort of the context that we went into the strike with. It wasn't a given that we were going to strike, and it certainly wasn't a given that we were going to win. Um, we mobilized for about a year and a half leading up to the strike, and we tried everything. We mobilized inside at work. We met early before work. We walked in together. We worked by the book. We did all kinds of things at work and all kinds of things after work. We picketed, informationally picketed the Verizon Wireless stores every day after work on the weekends. We had rallies. We had marches. We protested anywhere that Verizon was, and none of it seemed to make a difference. The company didn't move in about 10 months of bargaining. They didn't move from a very long list of concessionary demands. One lesson I took from that was you have to keep fighting no matter what. Because if we hadn't done that year and a half of mobilization, I don't think that we would have struck, and I don't think that we would have won, and I don't think that we would have had the support that we did. But it was frustrating, and people really felt like we were doing all of this to no avail. So when we finally walked out, everything completely changed. Because all of a sudden, we were in a real fight. And I think that was sort of a moment when it became clear to me, and thinking about this panel, and thinking about some of the questions about the lessons that we learned, people want to be part of a real fight, and people want to see a fight, and see people taking real risks, and taking on big targets, taking on fights that have the potential for real change, and that inspires people and makes them want to support it. And that inspiration and that public support then fuels the people who are on strike or who are active in that struggle to continue. And that sort of dynamic was very much what happened during the strike. Um, so I think uh, people saw that the strike was having an impact. They saw the pickets at the stores, community groups, different organizations, students adopted the stores, were out there supporting the picket lines. Um, and that was growing. So as the strike progressed, instead of having a decrease in terms of strikers' participation, but also in terms of public support, that momentum and that support was growing. The company saw it, the stock price went down. Um, they admitted that they weren't able to keep up with their installations. Um, and I think the other thing that we saw was that the strike really created the opportunity for members to step up. And so strikes, big actions, these kind of things create space for people to take on leadership roles and responsibilities that they haven't taken on before. Um, and so when we went back to work on June 1st and had really beat back this long list of concessions that the company had put forward, people went back with a sense that they had really fought for something that was bigger than just us. And they went back, we went back, with a sense that when you stick together and are able to build that kind of support, that 
the possibilities of what you can do are so much more. So even though that may wax and wane over time, there is a sense that what's possible and how you are at work every day and how you are in the bigger world has changed and has shifted. Um, I think it also strengthened members' sense of responsibility to other struggles. People felt like people came out and supported us, and we need to give back and support them as well. And we know that Trump and his administration are trying to drive a wedge in the working class. They're trying to drive a wedge between workers like my co-workers and the taxi workers, um, or union workers and non-union workers, immigrant workers and, and workforces that are more mixed. And I think that our challenge in the labor movement is really to build fight backs that bring workers together in fights um, that have ambitious goals. And it's a lot of day-to-day, -day, sometimes tedious organizing that allows us to then try to then launch the kind of big, bold actions, like the strike, like the kind of things that we're talking about here, that really have the possibility of changing the dynamic between workers and their employers, between workers and the community, and between different groups of workers. Um, so it's really good to be here. I'm happy to be in a, in a dialogue with both of you. And I think what we really want to think about is how do we expand the sense of what's possible? What we need to do is really create these bigger, bolder fights that people will rally around. And we're certainly seeing a, a, an increasing number of people who have never been active before who want to get involved and want to be part of that. You kind of just took our, our next question, which was to talk about the outside support for these strikes and why, what it is about a strike in particular that resonated with so many people and drew in all this support. Um, and while, while talking about that, since I'm going to throw this back to all of you, i um, love to hear you talk about how you were inspired by each other's actions to how these different strikes percolating through the, the ether, so to speak, um, inspired the different actions. So, I just want to say one thing. I remember growing up, I was seven years old, and my father worked as a maintenance worker in, at 505 8th Avenue in Manhattan. And I remember him going the DC 37 strike um, for almost, I think it lasted about eight weeks. And I'm telling you, these, my dad didn't have much. He came into this country with $100 in his pocket. He was, you know, a hard-working maintenance worker in this uh, almost 30-story building, um, you know, corporate building. And so I remember him telling me, you know, yeah, it's going to be tough for the next couple of weeks. He thought it was going to be a couple of weeks. It took a lot more than a couple of weeks. It's going to be really tough, Robert, but it's going to be, this is, this is, you know, this is going to be, you know, um, it's going to benefit benefit me and us and a lot of people at the end of the day. So I do remember growing up with um, those kind of movements back, and, and this was, I believe, in 1996, 97, around that time. In any case, I'm talking about Yemenis that have, like, really, they're not millionaires here. They're, like, small shop owners that have gone through a lot that have, you know, taken a real financial hit since the beginning of the um, Yemeni war where, a war, where there are, a lot of them are supporting at least 10 to 20 families back home in Yemen or, and in addition to family members that they're petitioned for living either in Djibouti or outside of Yemen. So it's, it's, it, it was not easy for them to close eight hours during, a, a, you know, a weekday. So um, I really, truly believe that strikes 
I mean, I believe in protest and rallying and events like these are very important educational events, but I re we need teeth. <coughs> we need teeth to, 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 to make these really, like, you know, we're in a capitalist country where everything's all about money. Okay? Let us, let, let us make them feel what it is, you know? Trust me, when they lose a dollar, it hurts, okay? So yes, strikes work, boycotts work, and I know this for a fact. I lived through it as a child, and they, you know, my dad, they, they, they got what they wanted in their contract, and as Verizon, what you were talking about, they do work, it works, and we need to do more of this, so we need to sacrifice. Yes, it's easier said than done, but you know, at the end of the day, if we want to really um, change and, um, you know, I don't think we no longer, we don't have a middle class anymore. We have a lower, lower middle class. What do we have anymore? But really, really, paycheck to paycheck, Americans everywhere are suffering. Yeah. Trump supporters, people that went out and voted for him are now like thinking, oh, well, what the hell did we do? Yeah. Yeah. While we believe in strikes and this kind of demonstration, the first thing is that the cab drivers considered as independent contractors. We have no benefits, we have no protection under Department of Labor. We have to build our power by ourselves. I remember in 1996 when we were just trying to organize drivers, New York City increased the fare by 26%. Driver get only 3%. 23% goes to the pocket of a big fleet owners because they were, they increases their leases. They were saying, oh, we are losing money. No, they become millionaires by the hardworking people. So we did not get, we, we remember that we were going to City Hall to talk to the mayor office and People from City Hall, they did not let inside the City Hall. They throw us out. They said, who are you guys? They said, we are organizers of drivers. They said, no, you are not. There is no union. Nothing. We took aim. We keep starting fighting. In 1998, when we had a strike, we hit hard economically to the New York City. I remember every day early in the morning, minimum 6,000 passengers comes early in the morning at LaGuardia Airport and 6,000 cabs dispatched to the Wall Street area. There was a, not a single cab. And right after, when they see there is no cab, no transportation, even though a lot of flights got canceled, people did not come to the city. A lot of people could not go to the restaurants, a lot of people could not go to shopping, and it was a really big economically burden on New York City. And then after, whenever we start talking, they welcomed us. In 2012, we have negotiated with the Taxi and Limousine Commission about the fare increase because we were able to convince them that drivers are making less than minimum wage. We gave our so big petition to the TLC and fleet owner also gave their petition. But we were able to win 100% fare increase for the driver's pocket. On top of that, we were able to pass the law that if a cab driver charges you 40 cents extra, he has to pay $1,000 fine to TLC. And those fleet owners, if they were overcharging, 
there is no uh, check and balance. So we were able to go to attorney generals because they were listening to us. They know that we have a people's power, our workers' power behind us. They sit down with them, we talk to them that these fleet owners are exploiting situation, they are stealing money of drivers. They, uh, they, they investigated the biggest fleet owner who owns 1,000 yellow cabs, and each cab uh, cost $1 million. He got fined $1.6 million, and that restitution money go back to the driver. The second of fleets, SLS Jet, who has 375 yellow cabs, he got fined $1.8 million and that's restitution money goes back to the driver. The third fleets, style management, they got investigated, they have to pay $700,000 back to the driver. So that's the way we build our power. Because we are not Wall Street people, we are working class people. Who gonna listen to us? So that's why we have to build power ourselves and these are the strategies we do because we cannot go to the court because court, they say, oh no, no, you have no rights to challenge these rules because a city council member made this rule and TLC uh, 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 enforced that rule. So our strength is in um, demonstrations, in picket lines and in strikes and that gave us uh, public moral support. Our message comes out and people understand that why we are fighting. So this is our way to uh, gain our power and fight for our rights. So that's why we, we think that our strikes are very important in, for the labor, especially for our working class peoples. It's interesting and exciting for me to hear sort of the description of what the Taxi Workers Alliance is doing now because I think it, it's amazing what you have been able to accomplish. And, and with uh, a group of workers who, you know, a lot of folks have said, well, you can't organize workers who are working in all different, you know, who are working in a cab and who are not in a centralized location. And I think it's, you know, part of what is exciting about the organizing that's taking place and has taken place over the last few decades in New York is we really have seen a lot of changes in terms of the organizing that's happening among unions and among workers who have traditionally been more organizing and the growth of a lot of new and different kinds of organizing among constituencies that had not been organized previously. So that's been inspirational to me and, and it's been interesting to hear some of the details about how that has happened. In terms of the, the question about public support for the Verizon strike, this was my third strike and, and at Verizon. Um, and the, the level of public support was completely different from anything that I had experienced in the, in the past. People were walking by the picket lines and just stopping to talk and then coming back the next day with cases of water or pizzas. And there was, I think, a sense that people wanted to help in any way that they could and participate. And I think one of the things that the union did well was really build very concrete ways for people to do that. So between Manhattan and the Bronx, uh, which my local covers, there's 20 Verizon wireless stores. Um, and we picketed them all day, every day, that they were open during the strike in addition to picketing all of the Verizon garages in any manhole or building where scabs and managers were working. So that is a lot of locations to cover, and we never would have been able to do that without the Adopt-A-Store program and without different groups taking on a store and coming back either every day or once a week but on a regular basis and, and providing that kind of support. Um, 
If the strike had gone longer, uh, the National Boycott Verizon Wireless campaign would have really um, taken off because it was sort of right on the cusp of doing that. And I think that that kind of action where you're really targeting the employer where they're vulnerable and where the where they care about, and in this case, Verizon cared about the stores and they cared about their image and they cared about their sales there, um, is really when you're able to have that kind of impact. And to have that kind of impact, you have to be able to hit them in a very big, sustained way. And that takes a lot of people to do that. So that was one of the things that, that really works during the strike and, the, and that we learned a lot from. I, I just wanted to say something about um, that kind of support where you said people would just, you know, they would, they would hear you out the, that, that day and then, then the very next day they're out there with water or whatever. Throughout the country, and I saw this and I got messages from people and friends where Yemeni American businessmen would go to airports where these attorneys have like actually like kind of lived where they would bring water and food night and day and that kind of support and solidarity and that kind of like, okay, yes, you know, they're doing this pro bono, they're not really getting anything, well, you know, a lot of these law firms as well have got to support this, but just the fact that, you know, you had the simple businessman, you know, get out at like six o'clock in the morning and, you know, have, you know, sandwiches and breakfast and like food and then they would just video, they, 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 they'd, you know, they, they'd videotape it for me and send them like, yes, we're with them, they're here, they've been here for weeks, it took weeks, like, before the circuit nine and it just yes that kind of support that kind of like um it's it just it paper power it's like the, this unity and this like you know um being able to understand and to be to feel what we we all are going through is just for me having like you know i'm not i'm not I'm, you know i guess like since the beginning of the Arab Spring, I've really just started really, really organizing. But to see it has is, is been really inspiring and powerful, and like it just keeps me going even when it's really, really hard. So, yeah. Yeah, I just want to add uh, some more things about uh, how these unions are working. Because uh, there is a 56 national unions in, under AFL-CIO, and they all are employees' union. As a big attack on union nowadays, last many, many years, unions are losing their members. But uh, the way we started working and the way we uh, do our strategies as a non-employee, uh, as, non as independent contractors, we show to the unions that how you can gain the momentum. And finally, Richard Trumka, who is the head of AFL-CIO, he realized, yes, we have to follow up this model because usually unions, uh, high officers uh, are not uh, connected to their members. Mm. We are always out. We are drivers ourselves. Our all board members are drivers. We are always connecting with the uh, regular members and we are building our power. So AFL-CIO took us as a 57th National Union a few years ago. And this is the only one union in American history which has no bargain rights, which is not covered under the Department of Labor. And we have now chapter in six different states, and we are working more and more to bring those all cab drivers who can organize themselves and build their power. And this is a, 
as you know thinking that way that how they can bring other like garment workers or uh, other uh, non trade unions to bring together and work with them together to build up power because we have so much attack on unions people are losing their benefits people are losing their wages and we are at this time under this kind of economical situation still people are making less than minimum wages so we have to think about it that what going to be future of unions or working class people in uh, uh, in near future especially under trump's administration Um, just to bounce off of that, I was just thinking about how um, great it is that we have a panel that is so representative of these different elements of today's economy um, with different employment structures where you're all workers, and yet perhaps only Pam here is considered uh, a traditional employee, right, um, in terms of being a rank-and-file union member with a clear you know, employer and a boss relationship, right? And yet we're all in this struggle together, um, and that's more clear than ever. And everybody went on strike. Right. Um, and so, you know, what does it mean to strike in the new economy and how does that tie into the civil rights struggle? Um, uh, Pam, you mean? Um, well, I think we're already seeing that in some of the, the things that have been planned. So, for instance, the May Day, you know, the Day Without Immigrants uh, that took place in February, which was, you know, amazing to see. Um, organized on such short notice and the number of people who participated um, in this very ground, you know, bottom-up um, effort. And now we're seeing for May 1st an increasing number of unions and community groups and different organizations who are thinking about, talking about what they're going to do on that day. Um, so I think that that kind of organizing um, is one example of that. And, um, you know, the one of the things that, that was exciting to me during the Verizon strike was that the Fight for 15 campaign was very much alive and well during that time. And so um, and I think the second day of the strike was the National Fight for 15 Day of Action. And having Verizon strikers go and support that and meet those folks and be part of that um, was important for us to see that uh, the labor movement really is much broader than what people have necessarily, you know, traditionally thought of as, um, as you you know as union workers and here was a whole group of workers who were fighting and winning very real uh, gains that I think for a while when they first put out the fight for 15 in the union seemed very very ambitious and hard to achieve and now that is so much a part of the public dialogue and so much a part of the dialogue about um, you know, just so much take, taken for granted among activists and among union people that, of course, there should be a $15 minimum, minimum wage and how are we going to fight for that and how are we going to help get those organizations, how are those organizations going to get to the place where it's not just fight for 15, but they really are also winning um, collective bargaining rights, but also part of building a much broader, um, vibrant effort, which they have really been able to do and sort of been in the forefront of. So, yeah, just a couple examples. Javed, I mean, you, um, the taxi workers are a representative of New York's diversity in so many ways, and, and you, in some ways, as an as a independent organization, have, um, you know, power to strike on issues that are outside of, you know, traditional labor disputes, right, such as, you know, this, um, this Muslim ban. So um, talk about how that ties into the action of JFK, but also the actions that you've been doing since the beginning, you know, that, that, that have mobilized you as taxi workers. 
Yeah, we are very happy that people understand our struggle and they start, uh, they realize it, that how drivers are suffering and how Uber corporate companies are making more money. And uh, they start deleting Uber. And uh, we already went to Europe also to speak at an uh, international labor organization in Geneva where we, I spoke of that uh, how these uh, corporate companies are coming to Europe and you have to be careful that uh, in the name of gig economy they are uh, trying to uh, demolish all benefits to the working class people that so you have to be careful. So we had a lot of meetings with Belgium cab drivers, uh, Germans and England cab drivers and slowly, slowly they start banning them in their countries. Like day before yesterday, Denmark banned uh, whole uh, Uber over there. So Uber is out from many other countries. And here is our, also our fight. We already filed a four or five lawsuit against uh, Uber companies. It's not only Uber, it's like a race to the bottom and uh, Ubernomics, the system they want to bring, it is so scary. So, the, because if they will be succeed, every other people are going to follow them up in the name of right of work. No, anybody who works, he has to have at least minimum wages, he has to have benefits, he has to have a livable income. Not all profits should go to those uh, corporate companies. So that is our big fight and uh, we already filed a lawsuit against the, the way they are ripping off our drivers. Uh, they are charging overcharge to them. On 4th April, we're going to have uh, this uh, hearing in a court where we wanted to fill up a whole room with our members to, to fight those. So this is the only way that uh, we are gaining a public uh, support. Public is uh, realizing, especially in New York, because New Yorkers are very open-minded. They understand diversity. They understand economical situations. and. I love New York. I'm living 27 years here. I cannot now see myself to live in any other place. Because this is my home. Even when I go to Pakistan, in one month I got bored, come back. <laughs> yeah, this I, so okay, I grew up there, my family is there, but uh, this is my city. I spent my 23 years organizing and I love it. So we want to be work as a hardworking, but we want to live a comfortable life. Not okay, live like Trump, but as we, we have food on the table, because we see so many things happening. Yeah, so that uh, is our uh, major goal, and uh, always fight that all working class people can have at least food on their table. They should have their benefits, especially medicals, because when we were uh, uh, organizing driver, we realized that it's tons of, tons of almost uh, all cab drivers don't have a health insurance. We used to do a health fair at JFK airport where we, lot of uh, hospitals people or other people were uh, pro bono coming over there and every day um, almost 2,000 people are going through those uh, um, free medical checkup. Like I never had um, uh, my uh, any health insurance. 10 years I didn't go to any doctor. Whenever we feel something, I have a totally now. That's it. But at least now I have uh, uh, health insurance through my spouse and uh, uh, I can go to and check. But a lot of drivers did not have. 
So we realized we bring this report all the way to OSHA that how drivers are suffering. I remember that when I was driving a cab, my other driver was who was driving night time. He has to go three times a week for to do his dialysis. So he was going to hospital and coming out from the dialysis and drive a cab. We saw the people who go to the hospital, do their chemotherapy and come and drive the cab. So this kind of situation driver was facing. And finally, thanks to Obamacare, that we were able to enroll drivers in Obamacare that which they can uh, afford. And now a lot of driver has those health insurance. But unions has to be stand together. Union has to change their strategy more related to the workers. Mm -hmm. More they have to come and stand and uh, talk to the to, to their workers and give them hope that we will fight together and change the policies what the governments are making. Especially we are very much uh, upset from Governor uh, Como, who is a champion of dollar fifteen, but he is in the pocket of uh, Uber. He is going to give them this uh, uh, chance to pass the TNC bill that every private person can pick up passenger. So there's 150,000 drivers, professional drivers, they're going to be out of job if they will start that. So that's why we need public support that no, it should not happen. So that kind of strategies we have to do. Um, as it relates to uh, Yemeni bodega owners, well, we, um for the most part, Yemeni businessmen or bodega, bodega owners, um, there is no alliance at this point. There is, they do work very hard. There's 12-hour shifts, seven days a week. Really don't have much rights. Um, in the past, we have tried to organize the workers uh, around these issues. But because a lot, it's a little bit different than again, your traditional labor struggles where um, two to three business owners will get together, Yemenis, and they'll open shop together. So maybe because they have not found our, they, there's, there isn't this kind of need like to, oh, okay, so, you know, there's these, you know, boss, this big boss out there, and then us. It's really a lot of them are in it together in terms of like, um, and I would talk about the first wave of Yemeni Americans coming to New York City and then the second wave. The first wave of Yemeni Americans coming to New York City, and a lot of them did settle in Brooklyn, a lot of them in Carroll Gardens, Borham Hill, Brooklyn Heights, did not go into opening uh, grocery stores. Most of the grocery stores are owned by Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, and um, that was the, when my family kind of settled in the 60s, 70s, 70s and early 80s. By the 90s, mid 90s, up until now, that's the second wave of Yemeni Americans that did come into this country post the civil war in Yemen, where North and South, um, there was a, a, a civil war that lasted about seven months. And then in 91, North and South became, you know, just in Yemen, there was just, they united and became one country, the Republic of Yemen. What happened is there was a second wave that did come into New York City. This 
second wave, a lot of them did come to this country, did not own. By that time, we, the uh, New York City housing crisis had already started, and um, a lot of the white Orthodox, like a lot of people that have like fled the cities, are coming back to New York City, and you know the housing market has skyrocketed. Whereas my family kind of benefited at the time. Anybody's ever read uh, Motherless Brooklyn? You know that's when my father had bought his um, bought his uh, townhouses at like pennies compared to what townhouses in Brooklyn, one of the most expensive boroughs in the world, by the way. In any case, the second wave of um, Yemeni Americans came here, um, were not able to buy real estate. What they're very really true that a lot of them were uneducated, did not know how to read or write English, but they did go into business and what they did is um, in a way they uh, two to three people whether they're family members or friends would get together you know work for a year a year and a half put as much money together and then buy a bodega and so there was this ripple effect and so they'd buy this bodega in this corner store and then they'd, then they'd go to the next and the next and the next and the next and then i would say from the mid 1990s up until now um, we have, uh, I think in the five boroughs, almost 6,000 um, grocery stores, bodegas, about 4,500, I would say, are Yemeni owned. That's a big deal in such a short time. Um, so there is this need at this point because, as you can imagine, if we are up to like 4,000 of grocery store and bodegas, these are small bodegas, and I'm not talking about other businessmen um, that have like opened like ATM World or like you know telecommunication business and whatever. I'm talking about the traditional bodega strikers that came out. You have like 4,000 bodegas in New York City. You've got that are employing two to three to four people. You know how many jobs are we creating? There are thousands of jobs that are being created right now. So yes, I think it is time. Uh, we kind of like, this This is actually something Ahlam Saeed, one of my friends who have organized for a very long time, but was like, Rabbi, don't you think this is time for us to organize? Organize the Yemeni, you know, um, not the owners, but the workers around, you know, not 12 hours, seven days a week kind of thing. I mean, and it's, and it's improved over the years. It's now, some of them are 10 hours, six days, eight hours, you know, it's improved. But we have a long way, and I think this is something that, um, that I think there's big potential for in, in terms of um, organizing my community and, uh, and these workers. And that was a clip from our special Belabored Live edition from Fordham Law School on labor organizing under Trump. You're joined by Rabia Altebani, community organizer and co-organizer of the Yemeni Bodega Strike, Pam Galpern, a Verizon field technician and mobilization coordinator for CWA Local 1101, and Javed Tariq, longtime taxi driver and member of the New York Taxi Workers Alliance. Special thanks to Fordham's Stein Public Interest Scholars and Fordham Law's Workers' Rights Advocates for hosting the event, along with technical assistance from Kareem Haj with Divided Productions. And that does it for our 125th episode of Belabored. Please get in touch with us on Twitter if a strike is happening near you, if there's an action you want to report on, if there's something egregious going on in the labor world that you want us to know about. You can get us on Twitter at hashtag belabored, or you can write us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. 
for the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.